Welcome to episode five of the Product 5 Full Stack Fintech Podcast. Today's podcast is an interview of Dave Matter, partner at Point72 Ventures, former CPO at Marketa, and board member at ProductFi. Dave sits down with Aaron Huang to discuss his experience working with ProductFi, the state of banking as a service, and the evolution of digital banking. Now, on to the interview. Right. Hey, everyone. I am Aaron, head of commercial at ProductFi. Welcome to the Banking as a Service podcast. And I've got a special guest today, uh, Dave Matter, advisor to Point72 and former chief product officer at Marketa. Uh, welcome, Dave. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Aaron. And thanks, everybody, for listening today. Yeah, thanks a lot. Just wanted to give a quick, uh, quick uh, round of intros for yourself. I know we talk a lot because you're an advisor at ProductFi. But I wanted you to, to sort of uh, let you give a chance to introduce yourself to folks beyond <laughs> beyond the, the title that you you mentioned. You're uh, you're more uh, more of a Renaissance man than just that. So, thank you. And uh, uh, for better or for worse, you know, fintech has been something that's been near and dear to my heart for 20 plus years now. I actually started my career with what I like to call the first digital bank in the U.S. with ING Direct. That you may recall, it had the original you know, branchless banking model with high yield savings accounts and checking accounts and, and debit cards and led product for them uh, through the early 2000s. From that point, I also found myself digging into lending with them, building out their automated mortgage and home equity products, as well as the infrastructure for those products, which then led me to, this is before the, uh, at least last mortgage crisis, uh, going to one of the largest mortgage originators in the US, American Home Mortgage out in New York and led product for them specifically for their risk products, which became incredibly relevant as the, uh, the housing bubble ensued in the mid-2000s. After that, I scratched into student lending, leading product with the first direct-to-consumer student loan company that was originating kind of non-standard Sally Mae loans geared at a better profile as well as incentive alignment with students and universities and lenders uh, and parents that was actually the first journey from a private company to a public company. So follow them through that scale journey as well. After that, I've been in investment tech with Citadel Investment Group. And so saw trading and hedge fund activity, which also then at that time got into distressed asset management as a result of the distressed mortgage crisis at significant scale, where we ended up building technology around mortgages and home equity loans. So we ended up selling and licensing to Quicken Loans that eventually became their foundation for their rocket mortgage product. And it was really after that, that after I'd kind of been out of banking and, and payments for about you know 10 to almost 12 years at that point, that kind of peeked my head out of the sand and realized that a lot of infrastructure around you know, card issuing and, and banking really hadn't evolved from 15 years of which we were already dealing with some legacy tech. And at that point, I met uh, Jason Gardner with Marketo when they were a direct-to-consumer company, came on board just after a Series A and convinced him and the board to pivot from direct-to-consumer to B2B to build a card issuing platform and led that for just about seven years. And thereafter, I've been working with uh, Point72 Ventures in a capacity where I help their portfolio companies really at that intersection product management, engineering, analytics, and design. And so I've been very fortunate to work with Aaron and the, uh, the product by team as, as part of that engagement and uh, looking forward to talking more about that and the, the state of banking as a service and other related areas today. 
Yeah, thanks, Dave. So you you know a little bit about banking and banking partnerships, I guess, given uh, <laughs> given your experience here. And given um, the, uh, the gray hair patches on the side of my head, too, <laughs> to show you. <laughs> uh, gray hair, no hair, you and I. So, uh, you know, there's there's a few flavor profiles, and this is one of the really interesting conversations, probably the first conversation I had with you, uh, probably over a year and a half ago. There's there's a BYOB, yeah. or B, BYOB or BYOP, which is bring, bring your own bank or bring your own program. Yeah. Um, there's the verticalized option, which is essentially build on of a single bank. And then there's essentially this... Uh, this notion of a distributed financial infrastructure on top of multiple FIs. And, you know, for those that haven't done bank partnerships or fintech like you, you mentioned kind of your, your past experience, but walk me through kind of like the evolution of your thesis on banking as a service through, through the experiences you just mentioned and, and, you know, how you're arriving at your current thesis for BAS today. Great. Yeah, no, I would love to. And, you know, through that process, you know, from a technical perspective, especially with they're dealing with the bank, you know, banks are ultimately beholden to, you know, what they would call their core banking system. And that's kind of the, the system that manages basically like the manifestation of a balance sheet, which is really what a bank is. They have assets and liabilities, and they have different products that are built on both sides of those balance sheets. But also, as we all know, you know, going into being a bank or acquiring bank comes with a metric ton of regulation and oversight and all kinds of lovely things that are related, but not necessarily contributing at times to you know, the modern product development practices. And so you know, over time, especially with Marketa, as we started to you know, service consumer debit cards in particular, which were framing themselves to become digital banks for consumers, it provided an opportunity for me to really kind of stretch even further where we were fitting into this, you know, issuer processor and program manager category. We really start to really rethink what that classification meant in the future and for the types of companies that are going to be building products on this type of infrastructure. And so if you're a new digital bank and your only product is some type of debit card or prepaid card. In my opinion, in my experience, you're not a bank. You're a you know, debit card manager or prepaid card program manager. But at the end of the day, what he also saw is they had roadmaps. And so oftentimes debit products are used as a segue to get into consumer products. You also right. start building out the other side of your balance sheet, which is I start taking deposits. I started providing savings accounts. Now I'm able to leverage my balance sheet when I start to you know, provide loans that can access you know, one side of the balance sheet in order to be the other. And you start to build this really nice symbiotic relationship. I think we were also seeing you know, competition starting to use this now, say, you know, more consistently in the uh, vernacular of payments and fintech of banking as a service, where you know, we had companies that were providing prepaid debit cards, and they were calling themselves a banking as a service platform. My experience, especially when you looked at the roadmaps of some of the addressable market, that's like one-tenth of what it actually would mean you know, to be banking as a service. And then you know, with regards to all this, you know, since most of the technology layers like you know, ProductFi, you know, Marketa on the issuing side, even others on the, on the acquiring side are not yet, at least, uh, full-fledged financial institutions, you're beholden to banks. And so I think yeah, obviously there's been a lot of talk you know, over the years and more recently around the Durban Amendment mm-hmm. and what that's enabled as far as you know, fintech and the interchange rates that you know, smaller uh, and more regional banks are able to garnish versus some of the you know, top five, top 10 you know, tier banks. 
also could, if you kind of look at it from a almost your technical lens to a business lens, you don't really want to pin yourself in a corner where you have a single point of failure. Because if you also look back, you know, over the last 10 to 12 years, there's been, you know, consolidation within banks, there's been consent orders to various banks that you want to make sure even beyond from a product and strategy point of view that you really are not 100% beholden to a single FI. Because at that point, then, you know, one piece in that chain breaks or links, that's going to impact your business and all of your downstream customers' business. So this concept, not only of, you know, distributed ledgering, you know, aka, you know, blockchain and other components, but really, you know, distributed banking, I think, you know, makes a, a lot of sense, not only from a company perspective, but also to create some competition, right? And so banks are starting to compete for the business of product buy and, and many other, you know, fintech companies. And so to be able to, you know, dynamically load balance your volume to ensure that you're getting you know, the lowest possible lending rates or the highest possible deposit rates or the best possible interchange you can pass on to your downstream customers and to their downstream cardholders. Um, right. I think that's a big, big benefit. Yeah, and I think we recently saw some of the after effects of what happened with Radius Bank and, and Lending Club, where actually a bunch of the, their clients uh, that had sort of pitched themselves to a single wagon, Pitch I guess, wagon. You know, yep. were, were left in a little <laughs> bit of a lurch. So and that kind of goes into, I guess, the second question around, you know, we, we understand at least at this incarnation of banking as a service that we're talking about larger pieces of infrastructure. Why now for banking as a service? You know, we talked about 1.0 models, which arguably were point solutions. Now we've got, you know, larger distributed systems. We talked about this a little bit, but there's been, there's been COVID effects there's been really large market forces. There's the capital markets um, and the Fed coming in. What's your thesis right now on sort of why now for banking as a service? Like, why, why is it so hot? Yeah, I, I think in some ways it also goes back to the conversation around, you know, core banking systems. And, you know, there, you do see some, I'd say, slight trickles of innovation <laughs> happening in core banking systems. But the ability for a bank to rip and replace their entire core banking system is honestly, it's not for the faint of heart. I have a lot of empathy for them. And as a result, it's not going to happen overnight. And so meanwhile, I think, you know, whether it's, you know, alternative lending products of the buy now, pay later space, new and compelling card issuing solutions are kind of moving at a faster rate than a lot of the legacy infrastructure would ever be able to catch up for yeah. And that presents itself an opportunity, right? And so, and I think this gets into a lot of the differentiation of ProductFi as well. When you really kind of go back to my statement around banking and banks being a product manifestation of a balance sheet, at the end of the day, a general ledger is really what's kind of centrally driving your, your P&L, but also your balance sheet. But if you look at that from a banking product, the ability to efficiently account for credits and debits is really core. And so I feel like there's a lot of these kind of very thin layer of IP banking as a service companies that are really just a one-to-one -one map to the file system of the underlying core banking system of the bank. And so at that point in time, if you always have to have not just consistency, because that's important, right? The banks still need you know, oversight and their balance sheet needs to balance. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean it needs to drive the products the customers are using on top of the banks. I think that is a major differentiator. And I think ProductFi, you know, even rewinding back, you know, a year and a half, oh boy, almost two years now. I mean, that was like 
the original you know IP that Yui and the team had built out. And I think we kind of had this really incredible, in my opinion, view of like, you know, where do you really start from the core of banking as a service and how do you differentiate? And there was a massive amount of actually internal IP that the team had built around ledgering. And now that allowed you and the team to be able to plug into, you know, various banks, but that's, you're not beholden to the products that the bank themselves are building off their core banking system. And so I, I think, you know, once you kind of look at abstracting out like the core accounting, because almost every fintech product, right? It's like, goes down to like accounting principles. You've got credits and debits and things yeah. offset themselves and things need to balance. But once you do that incredibly efficiently at scale using modern technology that now almost liberates this whole other layer on top, whether it's within your API or within, you know, componentized, you know, front end components that can be dropped into a web and mobile app. I think that, in my opinion, um, is really the future of banking as a service. And that's why I love working with you and the team. And then I believe that's differentiated a lot against a lot of the, uh, the others out there that claim to be <laughs> at least uh, banking as a service platforms. Yeah, we, we, we like to call it fungibility on our side. And I, and I think um, it's definitely something that we think deeply about. And I often ask myself, if I'm a potential partner in the space, you know, why should I care? And I, I actually just saw this graphic the other day that um, I think Alex Johnson and FinTech Ticks posted around all the players in the space. Now, you and I are able to possibly disambiguate all the marketing, look under the hood, understand yeah. the program operations, the idiosyncratic, idiosyncratic nature of bank partnerships. But if you're a potential partner today, you know, what are some questions that you should be asking? Because on the, on the face of it, from a cursory perspective, it's easy to see that, you know, everyone could potentially be sort of position themselves in, in, in similar ways if you don't have that discerning eye. But yeah. this goes into what you're saying, which is how do you help someone actually like navigate the landscape today? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think we can also get a little bit too caught up in, you know, we've, we've benefited from the proliferation of APIs within FinTech. Sure. But like, yes. you know, to, to point, you know, I feel like sometimes now we kind of sit on those laurels and say, you know, we'll just go look at the API and see what it can do. You know, that's, again, only a small fraction of the equation. Right. And so, you know, I think, you know, looking at differentiated products set of platforms been able to deliver to market, and, you know, it definitely comes to mind some of the, you know, efforts that we've done with Takeus and others, you know, they're there, they're succeeding because they have differentiated products. I also think there's a bit of a culture of these teams as well, where, it's kind of the the adage of you know, if I kept building the horses, all that my customers would want is a faster horse. They would never think <laughs> of a <laughs> think of a uh, think of a car, right? But um, I think there's so much you know creativity in this space, especially you know with the team at Productify, that we can look at different types of user experiences and verticals and start to kind of paint the picture of a future and future possibilities that our technology can enable. I think that's incredibly powerful and compelling. And I think you see some of those efforts now manifesting in some of our, you know, credit building products and others that again, you know, serve the purpose of you know, graduating then. So you can demonstrate that if we start doing this lightweight credit product, now this can get into more secured type lending products, which then segues into unsecured lending products. And now if you have all these things under an umbrella for a consumer or a business, what other new opportunities does this, does this open up? And so I think that ability to kind of paint some strokes as to what the future would look like, but pointing that our technology can enable this 
it's really kind of the, the right elevation without needing to have that needlepoint discerning eye that can lift up the hood and figure all those things yourself. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I'm not going to harken back, um, but I, I, I will. I mean, Angela is strange throughout the thesis that, you know, every company will be a fintech at some point. When I had started at ProductFi, I sort of thought deeply about that. And I started to see a lot more friction in the space than was necessary. And I kind of want to ask you this, which is there is a strong thesis for banking as a service as an ecosystem that that's the mission, the big, hairy, audacious goal. Yeah. But what do you see in terms of um, frictions to uh, adoption? For instance, if often asked this, which is what's to keep the local YMCA or the church from actually adopting banking as a service? Why is it that, you know, by the way, when I talk to the Marketa folks, they're very much still in for all intents and purposes, like enterprise fintech. Where is that sort of like gap um, and how do we actually bridge that? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting question too that I, I'd say my prior thesis on it honestly was probably off. Kind of walked into this assuming that you know, major tech companies that already have some large consumer or some business presence in perpetuity would always want to control their end user experience and that they have you know, tons of resources and tons of amazing designers. And it was interesting over time to actually almost see like anti-patterns in that thesis of like major tech companies, in some cases for you know, time to market and to dif- differentiate against the competition. Just wanted the fastest way to embed some of these financial products into their product. Obviously, you know, allowing skinnability and synergy with the UI and UX of the rest of the product. But you know, a lot of them would come and say, "Yeah, you know, we're a design and product-led company." But if you had you know widgets or even just a white label app that we could drop in, we would go live tomorrow. Over time, we might go you know, more down, bare to the metal to the API if it made sense. And then you know, on the flip side, you know. I think of other companies. I remember, man, early on, we were actually doing business with AAA. No offense, AAA, love the product, great you know, for its purpose. But I walked in, right, with a connotation of like, you know, there's no way that they're going to you know, have the team that, you know, would want to integrate to this API and embed it into their consumer apps. And it's actually the complete opposite. Mm. And so it's like, I think you kind of hit it of like, you know, having a toolkit of various options based on what's important to your customers and their constraints, uh, what they're trying to optimize for. I think having that optionality of being able to say, hey, there's you know, more full kind of drop-inable experiences versus you know, bare to the metal. But at the end of the day, like whatever integration path the customers should choose should be at the benefit you know, of their customers. And so if there is a strategic or product differentiation, that means, man, I absolutely have to do you know, the work to do full API integration, great. That doesn't preclude you from using something like, you know, Latinum and part of the product by toolkit of starting there. And if some new strategic opportunity comes up, that means, hey, you know, I need to go more bare to the metal, then do that. I think in short, Dave, your, your answer is it, it depends. And, and there, there are obviously a lot of considerations there. Yeah. Uh, in, in that same vein, there are also a lot of considerations on fees. I got asked this question on a, on a podcast, which I, I thought was, Somewhat unfair, but I answered it. So I'm going to throw this over to you, right? We, we've sure. seen, um, what was it? Airbase is now giving away 100% interchange. They're monetizing off of expense management. You know, you're starting to see companies that are starting to figure out and anticipate higher yields with rising interest rates. Like, where is this whole fee structure going with banks and banking as a service? Yeah, I think, you know, there's, um, we got to have the Durban Amendment. And so that's one piece that drives part of this right. with, with interchange. And you might have saw recently that, 
you know, as far as merchant acceptance fees from the payment network side to merchants could also be going up. We'll, we'll say, we'll call it as a result of inflation, but I'll, I'll save my opinion on, on that for maybe <laughs> another podcast. But I think there's this interesting cycle where if you look back in history, even take a, taking a peek at like historical credit and debit spend between recessionary periods, growth periods, inflationary periods, retractive periods, there's this interesting consumer spending pattern that kind of teeters back and forth between you know debit cards and using deposits against lending products. And so you know, I think having that balance of offering various forms of transaction facilitators, aka cards, that tap into different types of accounts provide some economic resiliency to a to a business and also downstream to to consumers. And yeah, I think you know interest rates in particular also present an interesting opportunity, right? I mean, some of the automated mortgage lenders that were out there apparently you know didn't have enough you know, gross profit margin sensitivity to be able to manage a quarter basis point or half a basis point hike in Fed rates, right? Yep. Suddenly yep. their whole business is like in jeopardy. I mean, that to me is also just mind boggling. I think an increase in savings rates is, is funny. There was a, an intro to the, uh, the John Stewart show on Apple TV. I don't know if you saw it recently on the stock market episode. If not, I'd highly recommend it because before he gets in the stock market, he talks about the history of savings accounts and kind of turned to his team and a younger team of like, boy, you guys, would you even like, what would you do if you got 5% on your savings account? They're like, you know, my interest rate in my savings accounts looks like a blood alcohol test this day, these days. Like, you know, I don't even know what that would be like, right? And so, you know, there's opportunities then that create for themselves, right? And so what does that mean suddenly if you could actually garnish you know, some meaningful amount of interest and held those things in deposit versus banks simply incentivizing folks to invest in the stock market if they want to get anything greater than, you know, 0.25 yield off the savings account. Right. And so, you know, then that presents interesting banking as a service opportunities around how do you kind of take advantage of what feels to be, you know, pending Fed rate hikes through this year and into next year, what types of new products could be enabled I kind of have maybe a little bit of a uh, an anti-pattern thesis to this too, where like certificates of deposit have really not been in vogue since late, late 90s and early 2000s. If we were to go through seven subsequent Fed rate hikes, having some certainty of a higher yield that you could put away for 18 months or 24 months could become very attractive. If you think about embedded finance, Almost think of even like incentivizing stored value with a merchant where yep. you could get, you know, yield in this kind of pseudo like CD account that's related to, you know, a popular merchant that incentivizes you. And at the end of the duration of that period, not only have you gotten, you know, interest yield, but you may have accumulated points, you know, yeah. loyalty, you know, potentially even different tiers of services. Think like streaming services where you've signed up for like, you know, silver. 18 months later, just by parking a bit of funds there, which you got interest rate for, you pop out of, boom, you're in a platinum membership or whatever it is, right? And so that's what I mean. I think it's really creative when you start thinking about like, how does some of the economic waves or you know, interest rate waves coming, what new types of things could that enable, especially if you look at some of the patterns in the past, but technology, I think, and banking on service platforms can really go beyond just these things are only relevant to my bank. Once these are now embedded into other products, apps, and services, and merchants that you're using, I think that's going to could be potentially very interesting and also a real value prop for consumers and businesses. 
Yeah, Starbucks has uh, re-entered the chat right now and raised their hands. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. Well, on 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 that inflationary note, let's 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 uh, let's end end out on the uh, cliffhanger questions that I've been dying to ask you. Sure. First question: Bitcoin, Bitcoin or Ethereum, and why? Oh boy. Yep. No. Now we're gonna. I would imagine my Twitter feed's probably gonna fill up after this one. Um, you know, I, I'm definitely going to lean more towards the Ethereum uh, end of that spectrum. For me, it's kind of my broader thesis of it's really the infrastructure of blockchain. And in my opinion, future iterations of, of the blockchain infrastructure, they're really going to define the future, uh, not only of finance and, and currency, but I also believe in the way of computing. You know, I think there's there's kind of that divide, right? When you think about Bitcoin and you know Ethereum as to, is it a store of value? Is it a currency? Is it an investment vehicle? You know, what really is it? You know, I think that's going to continue to evolve over time. But, you know, at the end of the day, if we start to think about any of these blockchains to really be become like a global network of money movement, you really do have to zoom into the resiliency, the security, and honestly, the throughput of that network. I think one of the things you absolutely have to give the payment card networks credit for is the amount of transactions per second that they're able to process with near like four to five, nine of uptime. That's really, really, really meaningful, especially when you're moving money globally. This idea that, you know, a certain chain can go down for a period of time and shrug your shoulders and like, you know, that's okay. Or, you know, or suddenly a, a node in a decentralized network can be corrupted or attacked and suddenly poof, you know, things just go into quote unquote ether, no pun intended, but that's, that's not, you know, that's not near the scale of which you can really start to drive kind of the global, you know, whether it is digital economy, you know, metaverse economy, or hey, you know, real world economy, like there's, there's infrastructure that needs to evolve. And so, most of my belief is there is a future of some form, you know, of Web three ish. <laughs> Not to go too far into that, but um, but most of my belief and focus in that any chips that I'd be playing would be more on the infrastructure side of of crypto and, and blockchain in general. We won't even go into the L two L three scaling solutions in this. Uh, in this yes, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, last question: Pancakes or waffles, and why? Oh boy, you know I am a. Um, I'm definitely going to lean to the waffle side um, of the spectrum here. My wife is probably going to be kicking me under the table here shortly because she does <laughs> make some of the most incredible gluten-free pancakes that I've ever had in my life. But, you know, I think waffles have a lot of versatility to them that potentially pancakes don't have. You know, you can go your standard syrup on top of the waffles. You can add a little bit of bacon to it. But I think what was one of the game changers is starting to have fried chicken sandwiches that are wedged between two pieces of waffle. I mean, that's just... That's just good stuff right there, Aaron. And so I'm going to go with the versatility of waffles over pancakes. Oh, my God. I might have to update the uh, uh, pancakes waffles discussion and sort of add the fried chicken layer in between. We'll, we'll, we'll save that for the next one. I can't picture fried chicken between two pancakes. Um, I've even attempted to A-B test it, and it's far superior on the waffle side. We are, so. we are going to A-B test this. We're, we're going to crowd see and see who wins. But um, Perfect. Uh, Dave, thanks for your time. We will, uh, we will connect on another one shortly, but thanks so much for your thoughts. Sounds great. Thanks for having me, Aaron, and thanks everyone for listening today.